0: Well, let me say it's an honor and a privilege and a joy to have all of you with us here today. And uh, I hope that the resurrection is real to you. I hope that you're not just here today because you're expected to be. And I hope today that if you are just here because you're expected to be, I hope when you leave here that you'll never go to church again just because you're expected to be. I hope you'll go because you met a man there that changed your life. Not me. I can't do it. But I know a man that can. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 28 this morning. And I appreciate all the singing. I appreciate Richard and Joy. I love that song that they sang. I'm thankful that he went a little further. And I know that that song is about Calvary, but I'm thankful too. And what we're talking about this morning is that he went a little further than Calvary too. And he rose from the grave, glorified, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's able to save to the uttermost them that put their faith in him. Matthew chapter number 28 this morning. And uh, I know that it is Easter. I'm going to make a confession to you. As a pastor, uh, 90% of the holidays that churches uh, observe or preach upon or speak about, uh, most pastors do not like dealing with them. Uh, We don't like the feeling of being constrained to a particular topic. But let me say this, if every Sunday was Easter, it'd suit me just fine. And we ought to be talking about the resurrection all the time. I would say that the resurrection is just as important, if not a more important part of the gospel than the crucifixion is. Part of the reason there's so many false professions today is because we have people accepting the historical fact of the crucifixion without accepting the Savior and the truth of the resurrection. It won't get you to heaven believing that Jesus died for your sins if you just believe it like you believe that Napoleon was killed at Waterloo or Julius Caesar was killed by his friends. Just accepting the historical fact will not change your life. And I fear that many that claim the name of Christ, what it really is is they just believe in Him like a child might believe in Santa Claus. But the truth of the matter is salvation takes place not just when we acknowledge the real and historical truth that Jesus Christ was the Son of God incarnate, lived a spotless, sinless life, born of a virgin, uh, that He did many signs and wonders and miracles, uh, that He went to a cross and died vicariously substitutionary death for you and I, that He paid our sin debt, but that He was buried and that He rose again the third day in power and in glory. And when you believe all that, but then you look towards heaven and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner... I know that I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. But I'm going to quit trying. And I'm going to ask you to forgive me and save me, and I'm going to trust you. That's when salvation takes place. And I'm thankful we believe in a salvation, aren't you? I'm thankful it's not a down payment plan. I'm thankful it's not an installment plan. I'm thankful the Lord doesn't take me part of the way and then expect my good works or the church to get me the rest of the way. I'm thankful that it's the full finished work of Christ on Calvary. Christ said, it is finished! And it was finished. And how dare I come along behind him and say, no, Lord, you weren't finished. You know, when a man tries to get to heaven through his... I'll preach here in a second. When he tries to get to heaven through his good works, he's coming along behind Calvary and saying, you was wrong, Lord, you weren't finished. That's what they're saying. They're saying it needs a little more. It needs a baptism. No, it doesn't need a baptism. Saying, oh, Lord, you said it was finished, but it needed church membership. No, it doesn't need church membership. You said it was finished, Lord, but it needs my vain attempts at righteousness. No, it doesn't need your vain attempts at righteousness. When he said it is finished, it was finished. And the price was paid. And I'm just thankful this morning, not only not only for the crucifixion, but for the resurrection. And I'm thankful not only for the resurrection, but for the return and the rapture of his bride. I'm excited this morning. I hope you are. Amen. We'll see if you're not before we leave here. Matthew chapter number 28 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number one, just going to read six verses to you this morning. You know where we're going, you know where we're headed, but I want us to look at it once again. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Let's read that last phrase again. It said, Come see the place where where the Lord lay. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it's true. Thank You, Lord, for the resurrection. I thank You for being alive today, Lord. I thank You for not staying in a tomb. And we know that it was not possible that death should hold You. But Lord, we just rejoice in this truth this morning. Now, Lord, I'm confident and conscious of the fact that we have many gathered here today. And in a room this size, it would not be surprising if there was some that did not know Your Son as their Savior. Lord, I pray that today, before they'd leave here and before it's everlasting too late, they'd come to know Your Son is their Savior. A collision with Calvary, Lord, that they would be changed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. And we're trusting Your preached Word to accomplish it. Help us just to get out of the way and stay out of the way for what You'd like to accomplish. Lord, we love You. We thank You for it. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You notice there in verse number 6, the use of the phrase, come see the place where the Lord lay. I'd like to spend a few moments this morning talking about an empty tomb. Now, I have no doubt that all across the city today, there's men that are preaching on an empty tomb. And let me say that if you're if they're preaching the Word of God faithfully, uh, then I appreciate them and I'm glad for them and I hope their souls saved. But today, as we look at this text, I want to just try to draw your mind back to that tomb. Could you imagine what it must have been like for the followers of Christ? You see, to them, up until this point, the cross had just been the tragic end to a beautiful life. Here they had left all they had known. They had followed our Lord. They had seen Him raise the dead. They had seen Him open the eyes of the blind and raise up those that were lame. They had heard Him preach. They had seen Him work. They had seen the bread broken. They had seen all the miracles that Christ has done. And they're waiting and expecting for the kingdom of Christ to be brought to this earth. In fact, they would go to ask Him later in the book of Acts. The Bible records that they asked Him, said, Wilt thou at this time restore thy? Kingdom. You see, the Jews were looking for a Messiah and a Messianic Kingdom. Can I say I'm thankful? There's still a kingdom coming, Amen. But they all in a few hours' time, their hopes and dreams are shattered. You can imagine the despair as they uh, huddled together for those three days and three nights. They wondered what the future held. They wondered what had happened to their hope. They wondered about this man, Jesus, who had claimed to be the Son of God, whom they loved so dearly, who had went to a bloody end on a bloody cross. There in the wee hours of this Sunday morning, the women come to the tomb. I don't know that they were expecting to find Him risen, to be honest with you. They came and they were bringing embalming and spices. They were bringing things to anoint His dead body. Can I say that a lot of Christianity today is nothing but bringing spices to a dead Savior? Now listen to me now this morning. Let me ask you something. Why would you come here? Did you come here just to pay your respects like you would at a funeral? Did you come here just to give a little honor? Or did you come here to meet with a risen Lord? I'm thankful to tell you this morning that if you came here with spices, you can leave with the Savior. I'm thankful to tell you this morning that if you came just out of obligation, you can leave with salvation. I'm thankful to tell you that if you came here just to give honor, you can leave with the Spirit of God indwelling you and you can live uh, a new life in Jesus Christ. They had come to this tomb. They did not know what was going to take place. They get there... The earthquakes, The stone is rolled back. But it's not rolled back to let the Lord out. The Lord was not there. The stone was not rolled back to allow Him. Later on in the book of John, we find that our Lord and His glorified body walked through a locked door. The tomb could not hold Him. And they were not opening it so that He could get out. But there is a singular purpose for which the tomb was opened this morning. The tomb was opened not so that He could get out, but so that we... Could look in. And this morning, I want to take a few moments and I want us to just look in the tomb this morning. And there's a few thoughts about this place that the Lord commands us to come and see. Now, uh, very likely, uh, in our lifetime, we probably won't get the opportunity to go to the place that they claim to be the tomb of our Lord and Savior. I-, I fear that the boiling pot that is the conflict over in that part of the world would prevent us from doing so. But I'm thankful we do not have to go there physically. I'm thankful that through the Word of God we can learn these truths. And I want to just name a few of them this morning. As I come to this place in my mind, as I walk the little pathway, as I see the mountainside, as I come, to this little carven tomb in the side of a hill, I would say that first off, I find that about this place that it is a prophetic place in the Word of God. Do you know, it's funny, sometimes we kind of think that Christ was coming along and had a good plan, but then uh, the Jews, they messed it up. That's not how it went. Sometimes we kind of think that the Lord came and He was trying to build a church and build a following. And then here came along the Jews with the help of the Roman soldiers and put a stop to it. What I'm saying is sometimes we see the cross of Calvary as, a, uh, as an unexpected conclusion to the life of the Savior. But can I say to you that Calvary was not an audible. Calvary was the plan from day one. The Lord did not take the broken pieces of Calvary and call an audible and build a church. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the book of Acts chapter number 2 says that He was delivered up by the determinate will and foreknowledge of God. This was always God's intention and God's plan. But could I say to you that Calvary was not only God's intention and God's plan? Could I say to you that the empty tomb was also God's intention? and God's plan. Listen to what the books of uh, Isaiah says in chapter number 53 and verse number 9. Now, most of us have read Isaiah 53. We know that it contains passages dealing, in fact, the entire chapter deals prophetically uh, with our Lord and Savior and uh, His messianic ministry. But listen to what it says in verse number 9 about our Lord. It says that He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death because He had done no violence... Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Do you understand that that tomb was prophetically planned out to be for our Lord and Savior? It's interesting to me that our Lord never bought a grave plot on this side. It's interesting to me that He never made arrangements. Typically, and most of us, uh, you know, at my age, we may not be thinking about it, but we ought to be. Uh, Some of you own grave plots somewhere on this earth. And you're planning, if the Lord tarries his coming, one day when you die, you're going to be buried in those grave plots. And anybody uh, that knows anything about the unpredictability of life, anybody that wants to do any planning and look to the future, they typically will do something like that. But isn't it interesting that in our Lord's ministry, He never once bought a tomb? You would think, uh, knowing the future and knowing the plan, that he would have uh, made some sort of preparation for it. You wonder why he didn't? Can I tell you why he didn't? He didn't because God already had a tomb picked out for him. This tomb belonged to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And by the way, you say, well, preacher, why did God need to borrow a tomb? He borrowed a tomb so that he could change a man's life. Do you know that Joseph of Arimathea was never the same after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He went from being a secret disciple, the Bible calls him, to being the one that went and begged the body of Jesus. Wonder what caused him to beg the body of Jesus. Well, you see, he was going to lay him in his tomb. You know, sometimes God lays stake on our life to get us to go out and make a profession and make a testimony for Him. Do you know that sometimes uh, those things that we're grappling with God about and struggling with God about that we don't understand, if we just give it over to Him, we'd find out He's just trying to make us something that we ought to be. He could have had His tomb. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He owns the hills under a thousand cattle. He could have had any tomb. He could have had any grave. He could have done anything that He wished. But He chose because God had chosen for Him to go and to take the grave of this man, Joseph of Arimathea. i tell you, friend, that convicts me of, in my life about what I give to the Lord. Listen to me now. You know why? Because Christ didn't need the tomb. He needed Joseph. But He got Joseph through the tomb. God doesn't need a thing from you or I, but He wants us. And you know, sometimes He has to get the things that we have just so He can get a hold of us. It was a prophetic place. But I would say not only was this tomb a prophetic place, I would say that it was a proving place. We've already talked about it. It was open for what reason? Not so He could get out, but so that we could look in. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate proof that He truly was the Son of God. And we're going to talk here in a minute about how particular and how peculiar that is. But let me just read a passage to you in Acts chapter number 2, verse 29. Peter says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Now you say, why is he talking about... Uh, David, because he was reading some passages out of the book of Psalms to them that David had written down about not seeing corruption, about not leaving the Holy One in corruption. And he says, obviously, uh, that David wasn't speaking of himself because we know where his tomb is. We know that David is dead to this day. He says, uh, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now listen to the next phrase he uses. He says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Could I say to you that the greatest proof that Jesus Christ was who He said He was is that He rose again. The greatest proof that He's the Son of God is that He rose again. I mean, it's one thing that He did miracles, but the apostles did miracles. It's one thing that He uh, did miracles, but hey, even even the Egyptian magicians in the book of Exodus did little tricks and did little signs and did little wonders. Uh, That doesn't mean anything, but name me one other person that ever rose themselves from the dead. That proves to me that He's the Son of God. Oh, and I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, the Bible says that, but that's just the Bible. No, study up on even secular history and it'll attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Study up some of the ancient writers. Study up on people like uh, Josephus and they'll tell you that He rose from the dead. Uh, study up on uh, some of the ancient historians, and they'll show you uh, that even in that time, it wasn't just one, it wasn't just two, but it was multitudes uh, that had seen him. He was seen of above of about five hundred brethren. It was witnessed. There was a testimony that Christ was alive and had rose from the dead, and that he was who he said he was. See, it's one thing to make claims. Anybody make claims. It's another thing to make good on them. He had said, "I am the Son of God." He had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. He said, try to destroy this temple. He said, And you say, well, he was talking about the temple, the Old Testament. No, the Bible says that he spake this of his body. He said, you destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. That crowd didn't understand. They're kind of thick-headed like us today. And they said, what is He speaking of? It took our fathers many, many years to build this temple. They didn't understand. What He was saying is, you try to destroy this body, and I'll prove to you I'm the Son of God. I'll rise in power and in glory. And we can today look at an empty tomb, not because we go there, not in Jerusalem, but we can look at the empty tomb from which the church has been birthed and been born and see that there's something special about Jesus Christ. I'd say it was a prophetic place. I'd say it was a proving place. But I would say because it was a proving place, it was a peculiar place. A peculiar place. You show me one tomb that's been (laughs) self-vacated. You tell me one tomb that has been emptied by the person that was entombed in it. You show me one tomb anywhere in which the person they buried in it got up and walked out of it. There is no place like this on the earth. No other tomb, no other grave. We just the other day, as Brother Larry was saying, we had the funeral for Brother Andy. And I'm thankful that one of these days, that ground that is burial ground today will be resurrection ground. But when that happens, Andy won't be raised of his own power and of his own accord. He'll be raised by the power of God. And he's not able to raise himself from the dead. I'm not able to raise myself from the dead. You're not able to raise yourself from the dead. But I'm here to tell you that Christ said in John chapter 10 and verse number 18, He said, I lay my life down and I take it up again. This power have I received from my Father. There's no tomb, no grave like it. Buddha doesn't have a grave like this. Confucius doesn't have a grave like this. Muhammad doesn't have... I know some of you are thinking, well, this is just another Easter message. This will change your life if you'll listen to me this morning. No pope ever had a grave like this. No cardinal ever had a grave like this. No cult leader ever had a grave like this. Joseph Smith never had a grave like this. Campbellites never had a grave like this. I'm trying to tell you today that there's something special about Jesus Christ. You show me another religious leader. We could go to their graves today. We could go to the grave. You could go to the grave of Muhammad today, and you'd find that it's closed up and full. You could go to the grave of Joseph Smith today. I guess you could if they haven't burned it. <laughs> and you'd find it to be closed and full today. You can go to the grave of every single religious leader that's ever lived, and if you can find it, it'll still be closed and full today. But you go to the grave of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the incarnate, magnificent Son of God, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the God of gods, you're going to find something different there. You're not going to find a body because there's no body to be found. You're not going to find Him there because He's not there to be found. You see, 2,000 years ago, they'd already made that trip. That's what they're going for. They're going to find the body. And there's so many today that all the religion is is going to find the body, but we're not going and looking for the body. Because we know He's risen. He's alive. I'm saying He's alive and able to save today. I don't understand why the Holy Spirit does what He does, and I don't understand why He leads the way He leads. But He won't let me preach any more than I'm preaching right now. Today is the day of salvation. And we can be saved because of a crucified and a resurrected Christ. There's no other religion like that. You'll not find another religion in the world comparable to Bible Christianity. Every other religion sets a bar and a standard and says, here, do your best to get there. But Bible Christianity sets a bar, sets a standard and says, you'll never get there. But here's a man that did. And here's a man that bore your sin. And here's a man that died in your place. And here's a man that suffered for you. And here's a man that was buried for you and took away your sin. And here's a man that rose again and is able and powerful to save today. Nothing compares to Bible Christianity. There's nothing like it. This is a peculiar tomb. You'll never find another one similar to this. You say, well, that's fairy tales. No, it's not fairy tales. If it's fairy tales, you're going to have to discard the witness and testimony of untold thousands of people that have put their faith in Him. Isn't it funny how in a court of law, listen, in a court of law, the the testimony of one person is enough to put a man to death. But isn't it funny in the spiritual realm that the testimony of thousands isn't enough to convince an atheist or an agnostic? Isn't it funny how in a court of law it just takes one person standing up and saying, I saw something, but we can come into this house of God today and we can have several, we can have 20 or 30 or 40 or however many God's got here today to stand and to say, I saw something and I met someone and He changed me. And still there will be some walk away saying, I don't believe. I don't believe it wasn't enough. Let me tell you something, I can testify that this man's alive today. Testify of it, He saved me, he's changed me. You know, telling where I'd be. I saved as a ten-year-old boy. I wasn't running drugs. I didn't have a needle in my arm. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of people I know today, my age, that do. That that did go down that road. That did wind up that place. It's not so much where he brought me from. It's where what he kept me from. It's not so much of how deep I was. Uh, it was how deep he kept me from going. And I'm here to tell you today that I'm a changed man and I'm a different person because of Christ and because of Calvary and because He's alive today. I'm here to tell you that He is risen. We see it as a peculiar place, but because it is a peculiar place, I believe that it is a particular place. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher, aren't those one and the same? No. No, I'll give you for instance, I'm peculiar. So are the rest of you, Amen. <laughs> Just because you're weird, if you're weird, that just means you're in the minority, amen? But we're all peculiar. This is a peculiar tomb, but it's particular because it tells me something. It tells me if there's only one that's risen from the dead, then there's only one that's able to save. And if it tells me that there's only one that's able to save, it tells me there's only one place to go to get salvation. You see, because of this empty tomb, I know that there's only one way to heaven. I said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas, you know, Thomas had a faith problem. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith, Unto Him I am the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. If you're going to get to heaven, you're going to have to go by way of an empty tomb. If you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have to go by way of a risen Savior. A dead man with dead creeds that mean nothing, dead principles, dead vain religion, dead vain symbolism. Just vain repetitions of meaningless things that do not penetrate the human heart nor the human soul will not get you to heaven. But I can tell you there's someone alive and risen today. He's able to save. I'm saying it's not enough that we adopt principles. We have to accept Him. It's not enough that we join a church, that we pay some money. We have to accept Him. And I'm here to tell you that He's the only way this morning. No church can save you. Let me tell you something. If I believed any church can save you, you better believe I'd be telling you this one could. But i will be the first one to tell you that this church cannot save you. No. You come through those doors a sinner, and you don't accept Christ as your Savior. When you walk out, you'll still be a sinner. Amen. We could dunk you in this baptistry. We could fill it up with water. We could dunk you. We could push you. We could drown you, and it wouldn't save you. You'd go down a uh, dry sinner. You'd come up a wet sinner. But I'm thankful to tell you today that this may be a particular place, but it's also a powerful place. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 1 and verse 15. It says, Wherefore, Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus, he says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance to the saints. Now listen to this. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 Says, and you hath he quickened who were dead. You know what quickened means? It means to be resurrected, to be made alive. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Oh, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, He even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. What did He do? He resurrected us. He raised us up together with Christ. By grace are ye saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You say, preacher, what is it that you're going on about? I'm saying that just as He raised His Son from the grave, He can raise us from the grave of our tombs and of our sins. He can raise us from the grave of our iniquities, of our hopelessness, of our despair. I'm saying if He can raise Christ after bearing our sins, then He can raise us after Christ has borne our sins. I'm saying that Christ is powerful to save today. That's what I'm saying. There's people say, I'm too far gone. No, you're not too far gone. You're not too far gone. People say, you don't know what I've done. I, knew, I know that Christ bore it. I know that He died for it. I know that He paid for it. Hey, this is a whole another sermon, and we'll preach it tonight if God will give me liberty too. But you know Acts chapter number 2 and verse 24 uh, says about Christ, whom God raised up and loosed the pains of death because He was not able to be holden by it. You know why Christ had to raise from the dead? Because the power of the uh, the strength of uh, death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, and Christ had fulfilled the law, and He had paid for sins. And the Bible says, knowing this, that Christ hath died unto sin once, death hath no more dominion over Him. What I'm saying is this. The wages of sin is death. We die because we're sinners, but Christ took our sin. He paid for it all, and He was still alive afterwards. And He rose from the grave because sin had no more claim over Him. He had already paid for it. I'm saying for your sins this morning, you say, I'm too bad. I'm too bad, preacher. You don't understand. Or maybe the problem, maybe why you'll die and go to hell isn't because you're saying you're too bad. Maybe it's because you're saying you're too good. Maybe it's because you're saying, I don't need that. Oh, but the Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us are sinners, but you don't have to die in your sin. Because Christ died for your sin, was buried, rose again the third day, and He's powerful enough to save you. I see that it is a powerful place, but I see it as a proclaiming place. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans four, twenty three through twenty five, it says, speaking of Abraham, having believed God and it being imputed unto him for righteousness, and it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. Righteousness be laid to our account. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, here's what I want you to get. The Bible says that righteousness can be imputed unto us or laid to our account. But what is the prerequisite for that? Uh, Do we have to be in a certain tax bracket, and a financial bracket? Do we have to be... Hey, we're all going to be in the same tax bracket soon. Broke. Amen. Do we have to be a certain color or creed or race or gender? Uh, Does it it say we have to be from a certain area? Does it say we have to have a certain social standing? No, it says for those that have believed on Him. I'll tell you what the empty tomb says to me. The empty tomb is as much a leveler as the cross of Calvary is. And it tells me that just as these women, when they came by, the angel said, come and see the place. I kind of believe, and you may say, oh, preacher, you're full of yourself when you say this, but I kind of believe if it had been Toby Weber 2,000 years ago walking by, that angel would have said, Toby... Come see the place. I think if it was you walking by, he'd have said, come see the place. I think today we can look at the lost sinner and we can say, hey, come see the place. I think we can look at our friends and loved ones and say, hey, come see the place. We can look at our co-workers and say, hey, come see the place. That was your tomb. That was your burial ground. Hallelujah. Christ is risen today and you can be saved. He didn't just take your sins. He took your tomb away from you. And we can look at anyone and say, Christ is able to save you. Christ wants to save you. Christ is willing to save you. Christ will save you today. I think this is a proclaiming place. And I'm going to close with this. I see in this passage, let's read them off. I see in this passage that this is a prophetic place. I see that this is a proving place. I see this as a peculiar place. I see it as a particular place. I see it as a powerful place. I see it as a proclaiming place. But I want to say too that I see this as a promising place. John's account in John chapter number 20 goes this way. It says, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about His head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Now some of you say, preacher, that puzzles me. That puzzles me. What does that mean? Why would our Lord get up from those grave clothes? Why would He just throw some of them down? And why would He take the napkin that was about His head and fold it and place it by itself? Well, if you were to study a little bit about Middle Eastern culture, in the homes when a family had a servant, or if you were at a dinner where there were servants, and sometimes these dinners would go on for hours and hours, and it would be an all-day event. A person was given a napkin by their server, and while they ate, that server would be standing there and watching them to give them anything that they need. That servant would give them uh, top off their drink or uh, give them more bread or more meat or whatever it might be. And uh, the problem with eating all day is at some points you're going to have to go to the bathroom. Somebody say amen. Some of you are saying, preacher, the problem with preaching all day is some of us have to go to the bathroom. But uh, so they had a provision for this. If a person got up from their table and they were done and finished and they did not want any more, and they were not coming back, they would take their napkin, they would crumple it, and they would merely toss it on their plate. And this was their way of saying, I'm finished, I'm done, and I'm not coming back. Oh, but if they were coming back. Oh, but if they just had something that they needed to take care of. And if they were coming back, you know what they would do? They'd take that little napkin, and they'd fold it neatly. And they'd lay it on their plate, and that was their way of telling the servants, I know that I'm not here right now. I know that I've got things that I have to do. But I'm telling you that I'm coming back soon. Now you say, why is it that he just folded his head? I'll tell you why. The Bible says that you and I were part of the church, which is the body of Christ. But what's Christ? Christ, the Bible says, is the head of the church. You see, when He rose from the dead... And when he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, the book of Acts says, the Bible says that after 40 days, uh, he gathered that little band that was with him, and it grew to a multitude of uh, some 500 brethren, and he told them uh, to go forth to preach the gospel to every creature. He told them that he was going to be coming back, and the Bible says, then he ascended up into heaven. You say, what was that? The head left. The head left. But when He went, uh, the angels stood there and uh, they looked at those disciples and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing? His same Jesus, uh, that was taken up from you, shall in like manner return. What were they saying? They're saying, Son, look at the napkin. He's coming back. The head may be gone. Uh, The grave clothes may be all that's left of the body. But He's folded the napkin. He's made a promise. And soon He's coming back to claim what is His. I know He's coming back because of the empty tomb. I know He's returning one day. You say, why... (laughs) You say, why is it that He left all those grave clothes uh, strewn about, all the linens strewn about? Uh, Well, you may believe differently than I do, but I kind of believe that was His way of saying that the sin and sickness that was in the church was going to be left behind. You see, when the head got up, He was glorified. He was perfect. When Christ got up, He had a glorified body. He was in perfection. But you and I, we still have this old broken down, sin-sick body. The head was coming back just as it was, but when He comes back for the body, He's coming back to change it. Paul said that this vile body shall be made like unto His glorious body. Well, This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. He's coming back for you and I. If you know Him as your Lord and Savior, He's coming back for you. And if you don't, you don't have to leave here without without knowing Him. There won't be a single lost person walk out that door, but of their own choice. There won't be a single person that's unsure of their salvation leave that place, but it's their own choosing. It's their own choosing if they do. Because today we have the Word of God, the promises of Christ. We have people that are willing to open a Bible and show you how you can be saved if you'll only come to an empty tomb. Come to Calvary. See Him on the cross, but see Him risen, glorified. And come to Him. Ask forgiveness of your sins and turn from dependence on yourself or your church or your religion or your righteousness or your intellect or whatever it is that's keeping you from Calvary. And call upon Him. He'll save you today.